just invite you to join me in your, your Bibles and the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 11, Luke 11. Luke 11. And by the way, thank you for, for being with us today, those of you who are first-time visitors. Uh, I know Mo, this is not the only church in Mobile that's preaching the gospel this morning, but I do believe God's doing a special work here at Cloverleaf, and I'm very, uh, I love this church, and I hope that you will, uh, you will love it as, as well. Luke chapter 11. Follow along as, I, as we read our, our text here, beginning in verse 14. We're just doing a, a verse-by-verse study through the middle section of, of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 11, picking up in verse 14. And he, that is Jesus, was casting out a a demon, a devil, and it was dumb, unable to speak. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people people wondered. But some of them said, he casteth out demons through Beelzebub, the chief of the demons. And others, tempting or testing him, were seeking of him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falleth. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because ye say that I cast out demons through Beelzebub. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I with the finger of God cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and over, shall overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoil. He that is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth. In our world today, we could divide our 7 billion plus people in the world into, into a number of different groups. I can think of maybe countries, roughly 200, 190 countries, depending on who's counting, whether it's the UN and whether different breakaway provinces are recognized. Let's just say roughly 200 countries. We could divide the world that way. Or we could divide the world into the 650 major ethnic groups or even the 7,000-ish people groups if we want to divide it even further. Or we can divide the world into religions, right? There, there are roughly 4,000 recognized religions in our world today, and that number is always changing because our hearts, as it has been said, are idol factories. With all this variety, with all this diversity in our world, and we can even think of the city, the different groups that are represented in the city and the way that demographers would, would look and, and look at uh, various cities and counties and whatnot. At the end of the day, in the eyes of God, there are ultimately simply two groups in this world. Just two groups. Jesus gives them to us in verse 23. Those who are with Christ and those who are opposed to Christ. Those who are in the kingdom of King Jesus and those who are in the kingdom and under the sway of Satan. Those who are saved. Those who are lost. Those who have bowed the knee to Jesus and those who refuse Jesus. There are, in the final estimation, only two groups in this world. Within this room, there are really only two groups of people, those who are bowing the knee to King Jesus and those who are not. There's no middle ground. There's no space here for uh, neutrality. You either own Christ as king or you own yourself as king. You're either on God's side or Satan's side. There's a cosmic war. Think about World War II. Like literally the entire world is sort of polarized into the allies or the the axis or the Cold War, right? We talked, the the, the whole idea of the third world, like this idea that there's even some uh, unallied nations. In this cosmic war, there there is no Switzerland, right? There There are no neutral nations. There's no parties that are like, well, I'm just sort of ambivalent about Jesus. As this text makes abundantly clear, you either reject him or you receive him, you repent. You see, the moment that we introduce God, we introduce divine authority to the conversation, we are forced to make a decision. We are forced into a crisis. Because definitionally built into the concept of God is omnipotent and total authority, right? Which means there cannot be any other rival authority. So once we begin to to be confronted with God and with the authority of Jesus, we're forced to say, am I going to recognize his authority, or am I going to try to chart my own course? We're forced to recognize his supremacy, and it demands of us that we recognize his preeminence in my life in all areas. 
We dive into this text, we're beginning sort of a new section in the journey to Jerusalem. We saw Jesus begins the journey back in chapter 9, and from really chapter, the end of chapter 9 to chapter 19, he is making his way to the cross. This, the, the shadow of the cross is looming larger and larger as we go along. Now, the, the events of these chapters are not necessarily all chronological. They're sort of grouped thematically. And where we've been for the last several weeks is this focus on Jesus and his disciples. He sends the 72 out. They come back. He's, he's teaching them. Last week we saw his teaching on prayer, which is a very private setting. But you will notice beginning in verse 14, there's, there, there are crowds that are around now. So we're back in Jesus' interaction with the crowds. And what is going to be the note really all the way through the rest of chapter 11 and moving into chapter 12 is this escalating conflict with the religious leaders that's going to culminate in the cross. So we've shifted. There's now this, this confrontation between Jesus and the religious establishment, between Jesus and the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, etc. There's this escalating conflict between the kingdom of Jesus and the kingdom of Satan. We really reach a crisis point in the ministry of Jesus. This is a, a decisive rejection of Christ by the religious leaders. They, they, they literally ascribe to him satanic inspiration they, they say to him that you are in league with Satan. This is beyond just, hey, we disagree with you about the Sabbath or some of the, the arcane rules of rabbinic interpretation. This is a complete and total rejection. This is escalating hostility. Think about this. After years of ministry, after multiple miracles, after multiple uh, messages that he has, has preached, the majority of the people are going to reject him. In spite of staggering evidence, their hearts have become harder than diamonds. We're, we're confronted here with his authority. This text calls you and me. So we, we, I want us to not just say, oh, cool, those guys, they really blew it. But I want us to confront our own hearts this morning. Do I submit to the authority of Jesus? God is demanding of us, not suggesting, not just inviting. This is not just a, a nice suggestion that you could take or leave among many other suggestions like going to Golden Corral, being like, I'm not going to eat the mashed potatoes, but I'm going to have the steak. But this, this demands, Jesus demands that we submit to his authority. Just walk through this text. I want you to note, notice three reasons why we must submit to the authority of Jesus. First off, we see in verse 14 to 16, we see this first reason, his miraculous power demands that we submit to his authority. We see Jesus expelling a demon, displaying his miraculous power. So we begin abruptly. He was casting out a, a demon, and it just sort of drops us right. We parachute right into the middle of the story. It's like a scene change, completely different place. Here he is casting out a demon. He's done this over and over again in the Gospel of Luke. We're drawn right into the action. All over Galilee, all over Palestine, Jesus has been delivering oppressed souls from the domination of demons. See, at the beginning of his ministry, we see it throughout his ministry, a demonstration of his divine, miraculous power. Jesus has invaded Satan's domain. Satan has sort of temporary sway over this world. He's the prince and the power of the air. And here comes Jesus with his kingdom confronting Satan's kingdom. According to Luke chapter 4, verses 18 to 19, which is programmatic for the book, he says, I've come to deliver the oppressed from prison, to the opening of the, the eyes of the blind, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I'm here to pronounce liberation from sin and from Satan. So think of this, this is like June 6, 1944. Jesus is rolling into enemy territory. He's coming in under fire. He's coming in on Omaha Beach. Direct confrontation, conflict with the kingdom of Satan. We see it in the wilderness. We see it in this conflict with the demons throughout his ministry. And it's going to culminate at the cross. And by the way, Jesus is going to mop the floor with Satan, right? He's going to walk out of the tomb. Satan's head will be crushed. The demons, when they come to take over an individual, when they demonize an individual, notice what, what happens in verse 14. The demon, it says the demon was dumb. The demon was mute. When the demon is cast out, the man speaks. The demon is so taken over this man's soul and taking control of his faculties, the man is incapable of speaking. Could you imagine going years and years and years without having the ability to speak? You say, well, I'll just write stuff down. Okay, back in, people, back in these days, people were predominantly illiterate. So you can't even pass a note to be like, hey, what are we having for dinner? You're just having to do gestures, and, and people, people are staying away from you. This person is in a, just a horrific, tragic place. You see, sin always dehumanizes Sin always robs us of our dignity, and the gospel brings it back. We see in the gospels a, a guy who's inhabited by a legion of demons, like a whole army of demons, and he's engaged in self-destructive behavior. What is Satan doing? He is trying to fight God 
by destroying the image of God in man. That's what sin does. Sin does not give us freedom. That's the lie is, oh man, I I want freedom, I'm going to go do my own thing, no rules for me, when in fact you are going into deeper and deeper slavery and bondage. Don't buy that lie. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So here's this poor guy who's been dominated by a demon. And now notice the verse, verse 14, just sort of says as a matter of fact. All right, look at it. And it came to pass when the demon was gone out. Like, it's not if, it's when. Like when Jesus confronts a demon, the demons have to obey him. They have to answer to the authority of Jesus. It's not like this is yin and yang. Jesus is going, we don't know who's going to win. But the, 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 the end of this conflict is already guaranteed. So when the demon was gone out, the dumb man spake. The mute man spoke for perhaps the first time in years. And people were wondering. Just got to imagine what it would be like to be a fly on the wall there. What was the man saying? Like, honey, your spaghetti is terrible. Like, no, I don't think the first words out of his mouth were, were, were things along those lines. I think they were, thank you for delivering me. You, you are awesome, Jesus. And, and just worshiping and expressing praise that then spills over to this entire crowd. Now, it says the people. The idea is literally the crowds. There's huge multitudes of people watching this to verify what has happened. People who had known this man for their whole lives could not believe their eyes. They could not believe their ears, a voice they had perhaps had never heard or had not heard in, in years, decades. We don't know how long. This man, as he sang God's praises, what a joyous scene that day. So notice the reactions. I said we're, we're, we're confronted with the authority of Jesus. We're forced to make a decision. We are, we, are, we are confronted with this crisis. And there's a number of reactions in this text. Several of them are inadequate. The first one here is the, the people wondered. They were amazed. One way that we can respond to the authority of Jesus is with fascination. Throughout Jesus' ministry, people wonder. They're amazed. But understand this wonder does not necessarily lead to worship. Fascination is not the same as faith. We live here in the Bible Belt. Okay, This is Mobile, Alabama. We are almost the buckle of the Bible Belt. Like, you know, there may be other cities that would make that claim. Churches all over, like on the way to church today. I don't know if you've ever counted how many churches you passed on your way coming to this church. There's a lot of people in this city who would, would, would claim allegiance to Jesus. Who would even say, yeah, I love Jesus. Might even have a bumper sticker, a fish on their car. But I'm not convinced that everyone who says the name of Jesus actually owns him as their Lord. There is an eternity of difference between saying, Lord, Lord and actually being regenerate. It could be you're here today, and you're one of those people who's like, yeah, I like Jesus. I've, I've, always, I've always kind of been into Jesus. The question, is, are you, the question is not, are you fascinated by Jesus? The question is not, do you have sort of a passing relationship with Jesus? The question is this, is Jesus king? Have you bowed the knee to his authority? Does he rule? So there's fascination. That's an inadequate response. Inadequate response. Here's another one, verse 15. But some, this is contrasting, there's one group that's wondering, here's another group. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the chief, the, the leader, the, the first one of the, of the demons. Now, we find out in the parallel accounts in Mark and in Matthew, these guys are the Pharisees, they're the scribes. They're the usual suspects of people who don't like Jesus. Isn't it interesting, they don't say, oh, that miracle didn't happen. This is not like one of these Benny Hinn crusades where there's somebody who's planted in the audience who claims to be healed. It's none of that kind of garbage. This is an actual bona fide real miracle, and nobody's coming along saying it didn't actually happen. I think that's fascinating. The Pharisees never, the, the Pharisees never say, yeah, Jesus didn't really do miracles. They can't deny it. It is undeniable, the authority, the power of Jesus. So what do they say? Well, part one of the crowd says Jesus is cool. The Pharisees said Jesus is evil. Yeah, he's done a miracle, but it's not of God. This is a false flag operation. Satan's coming along. He's going to empower this Jesus character, so a bunch of people believe in him just to deceive them further and further in the darkness. That's their theory. They're stunned by the display of power. They say it's only by Satan's power. I I think these guys are jealous. Um, They're not really popular. Okay, The Pharisees aren't exactly people who are making friends and and everybody loves them. Here they are. They're off judging everybody. And and people are kind of, oh, the Pharisees. Here comes Jesus. And he has real power. He speaks with authority and not as the scribes. right? He preaches like no one ever preached. Never man spake like this man. Huge crowds following. I think the Pharisees are jealous. Jesus is cutting into their business. He's going after the same demographic that they have of sort of conservative, Torah-believing, Torah-observant Jews. So say he's casting out demons by Beelzebul. 
alternatively Beelzebub. The idea of this is a, is a mockery on a, the name of a, an Old Testament deity, of a, a pagan Canaanite deity. They just changed one letter from Lord of the High Place, and it became Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dung Heap. It was just a way to mock the, the false gods uh, around them. By the time of Jesus, Beelzebub became an alternate title for Satan. So they're saying Jesus is satanically empowered. That is quite an insult. All right, that is an incredible insult to look at the Son of God as he casts out a demon and say, this man is demonically empowered. This is a shocking attack on the perfect, sinless Son of God. This is the, remember, this is who the, Jesus who served. This is Jesus who helped. This is Jesus who delivered. This is Jesus who healed. And they're saying, he's a demonic fraud. Wow, I mean, that is intense. In fact, Jesus will say in Matthew 12, Hey, you just blasphemed the Holy Spirit. You just blasphemed the very being of God. This is the ultimate form of blasphemy, to ascribe Jesus' works to the power of Satan. This represents, of course, a decisive rejection of Jesus. This is going to lead to the cross. It's why it's here in the journey in Jerusalem. This is why Luke puts this here. We're, we're moving towards the cross. And here the, the seeds are very much sown that are going to spring up to the bitter fruits of Golgotha. Man, this is horrible. Well, don't forget, this is the Father's plan. See the Father's plan unfold. You know the Father's plan involved the Pharisees, the scribes, the nation, rejecting their own Messiah. That's what the book of Acts tells us. This was the plan of God. This was prophesied. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed, right? This prediction that the nation is going to reject him, leading to the cross so you and I could be redeemed. You realize without the cross... There is no hope for you and me to be forgiven. None. Zilch. Praise God for his goodness. But there's another response, another inadequate response to this miraculous power of Jesus. Some people are like, yeah, Jesus is really cool. This is awesome. Other people are like, Jesus is evil. He's bad. He's satanically empowered. Verse 16. And others, here's a third, third response that some people have, to tempt him, to test him. We're seeking of him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. These are people who are like, yeah, we don't really know if Jesus is the real deal. We might call this response skepticism. These are the folks who are like, okay, you cast out a demon, but really there's not enough evidence here yet for us to, to believe in you. Maybe this is even a delaying tactic. If, we, if you could just give us more evidence, we'll make up our mind. We need more proof. What you've done already is not enough. But what more could you ask for at this point? Right? Jesus has already raised the dead. He has healed. He's casting out demons. He's feeding the multitudes. And they're saying, yeah, we need more evidence. Show us a trick, a, a sign from heaven, maybe fire from heaven like Elijah did. Right? That would be pretty awesome. And then we'd be like, yeah, you're the real deal. But as it's said in, later on in Luke's gospel with the you know, rich man and Lazarus, about the rich man and Lazarus, Statement is this, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they persuade the one rise from the dead. The issue here is not lack of evidence. The issue here is not inadequate proof. The issue here is lack of faith. And maybe this is you today. You, you come to church week after week. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. There's never been a time, though, that you have repented. You're not living in reliance on Jesus. Maybe there's real questions in your mind. Maybe you... you Listen, I understand how this, I grew up in church, I grew up in a Christian home, and you come to the point where you're like, is this, do I really believe this stuff? Okay, is, this, is, this, is this really my faith, or is this just kind of my parents' faith? And you begin to have questions like, is this real or not? And, and you begin to say, I need, I need evidence, I, I, need, I need proof. Maybe in your mind you're thinking, I'm not really sure about this Christianity stuff. But you know, if Jesus actually appeared to me, if I actually saw a miracle, then I would, then I would be convinced well, the reality, beloved, is that God has already given us evidence of his existence. We are living in it. We are walking in a living, breathing exhibit of God's creative power in the universe around us. He's given us a conscience, a sense of right and wrong. He's given us his word as a testimony of, look at the mighty acts of God. Look at who Jesus is. He's already given us evidence. There is no evidence in the world that can create faith. Right? There's no argument that you and I can use in, in talking to the world that is going to be like, oh, man, this is, the, this is the silver bullet, and this will persuade people to, to come to Christ. 
You see, we as sinners, our issue is not that we are unpersuaded. It's not that we lack evidence. According to Ephesians 2, our problem is that we are spiritually dead. We do not need better arguments. We need spiritual life. We need regeneration. We need a new heart. We need for God to take the heart of stone out and give us a heart of flesh so that we can respond to him. We need a divine miracle. And so here we see in these first few verses, Jesus' miraculous power. This in and of itself, if this is all we had, should be enough for us to say, I bow the knee to you. You're your God. You tell me whatever you want. I belong to you. But he doesn't stop there. He gives us a second reason, second compelling proof of his authority. Beginning in verse 17 now, we're going to see, secondly, his kingly power. Now, that that demand for a sign he's going to pick up with later on. We'll look at this next week in verse 29. So he really is going to answer these objections. He's going to deal first with the one that says, you're satanically empowered. He's going to answer that beginning in verse 17. Then he's going to pick up with the demand for a sign in verse 29. But he, knowing their, their thoughts. So apparently these things in verse 15 are not actually being said audibly. Okay, they're not out there being like, you're satanically... No, they're, they're just sort of muttering these things under their breath and whispering them to each other, even just thinking them in their hearts. And Jesus, being divine, knows their thoughts. Okay, that would be kind of... That would be really unnerving if you were thinking like, oh, man, I want to go to La Hacienda end of the day and get a chimichanga, and I'll be like, make sure you get cheese on it, and you'll be like, whoa, that would... You know, if you didn't actually say that and I was reading your thoughts, that would be very, very disturbing and unnerving. Jesus can only do this because... He's divine. But what he's going to do is just completely dismantle their argument. They've built this, this, this accusation. It's, it's, pretty, it's a pretty interesting argument, this conspiracy theory of, well, you're actually empowered by Satan, so what looks like it's from God is actually satanically empowered, and you know, any evidence that you do otherwise is actually evidence for the argument. That's kind of how conspiracy theories work. They're sort of like non-falsifiable. They're, they're, you can't actually disprove. Uh, so this is their argument. You're empowered by Satan. It's a false flag operation. So anything you do is actually proving that you're working for Satan. Okay, Jesus is going to just completely destroy that argument in verse 17. Starts off with an illustration, says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. This is just axiomatic. Okay, if you've got a civil war going on, it does not make you stronger. Right, if we have a civil war break out and then China's like, hey, let's go to the war with the United States. The fact that you're at war with yourself does not make you stronger and more able to fight off the enemy. That's just no duh, right? That's common sense. Says any kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Countries where there's infighting brought to desolation. In fact, Israel's history would, would, will bear this out. Just a generation after the time of Jesus, there's this big rebellion against Rome, A.D. 66. Uh, the zealots are like, let's get rid of the Romans. I mean, they're they are hardcore nationalists. So they're like, we're going to take on us puny little Judea. We're going to take on the most powerful superpower of the day, Rome. So they go to war with Rome, and eventually the Romans come through with their armies. They sweep through, and they all are, they're all holed up in the city of Jerusalem. We often think A.D. 70, when the city of Jerusalem falls, it's just the sheer power of the Roman military that brings them down. No, actually, according to Josephus, what was going on, the people inside the city were more busy killing each other than they were worrying about the Romans, who are literally outside the gate besieging the city. And here they are on the Temple Mount, literally murdering one another. So the Romans just kind of have to roll in, and it's an absolute bloodbath. Kingdom against itself is going to be brought to ruin, brought to desolation. This would play out in Israel's history, of course. But his point here is to to, to say, hey, axiomatic, this is just always true. Kingdoms that fight against each other, nations that are at civil war with each other, eventually collapse. Verse 18, now he applies it. If Satan also be divided against himself, how shall his kingdom stand? Because you say that I cast out demons through Beelzebub. Jesus is saying, quite simply, your accusation is completely absurd. It is illogical. Okay, it'd be one thing if this was like the way a false flag operation works is you sort of stage a little side battle. What Jesus is doing to the kingdom of Satan, though, is not like a little, hey, we'll just pretend you cast out a demon. No, Jesus is effectively nuking the kingdom of Satan. He's saying your argument is like this. You're saying that the way to win the war is to nuke yourself. Like, that would be really dumb. You say, man, we're going to, okay, we're going we're to, Boston Red Sox are playing the New York Yankees. Like, okay, we're really going to, Red Sox are really going to show up the Yankees, and here's what we're going to do. 
every batter who gets up is going to strike out every time. It'll be brilliant. It'll be genius. And you're like, huh? That doesn't make any sense. He's saying that's, what, that's effectively what you're arguing. Satan is being completely destroyed by my... Jesus is not just casting out one demon to try to hoodwink people. He's casting out demon after demon after demon. Like Satan's kingdom is suffering major, major defeats. He's saying there's no way this is Satan trying to hoodwink people by pretending to lose. He's being absolutely crushed through my power. Jesus is smashing entire armies of demons. He's wiping out entire demon legions. People are being permanently transformed and delivered. This is not just a temporary of, you know, that every, things are... No, think about the legion. He's clothed in his right mind, going back to be a missionary. So he's saying your, your argument is, is illogical. Say that Satan's kingdom is fighting against itself. Verse 19, he goes on. Notice, by the way, verse 18 begins with this... If Satan, and then verse 19, if by Beelzebub, and then verse 20, if I with the finger of God. These, these if statements form this three-part argument that he's making. Okay, he's using logic. Uh, logic is not bad. So, so, oh, that's just logic. We just kind of don't use logic. Jesus uses logic and reasoning with the Pharisees. We were made in the image of God. Part of being made in the image of God is there's logic and there's something compelling about it. So he's, he's doing that. He says, your accusation is illogical, verses 17 and 18. 18. Verse 19, now he sort of turns it around on them. He says, it's actually inconsistent. And if I, by Beelzebub, cast out devils, he says, okay, let me just grant for a moment your argument. If I am empowered by Satan, okay, Satan's giving me the power, I'm casting out demons. Let's just say that that's happening. By whom do your sons cast them out? Your sons may be literal children, but I think what this means is your followers. Okay, scribes, Pharisees, big religious head honchos from Jerusalem. If I'm demonically empowered, okay, you guys have exorcists. That's one thing that we do see in the book of Acts, is there were Jewish exorcists who attempted to cast out demons as well. And by the way, they weren't very good at it. If you read Acts 19, you'll find out the sons of Sceva, they come in, they're like, Trying to cast out demons out of a man. We, we adjure you by the God who Paul worships to come out. And the demonic man jumps on these seven dudes and, like, with this demonic power, beats them up. And they all run out of the house beat up and naked. Like, that did not go well, right? Like, if your seven people are running away from the fight and they literally, like, took your shirt, didn't go well. So there's these, these Jewish exorcists who are contemporaries of Jesus who are also claiming to be able to cast out demons, and they're nowhere near as good at it as Jesus is. They have all these weird incantations and little spells that they would use. They were not effective at it. Jesus says, okay, if I, by Satan, am casting out demons and I'm actually getting the job done, your guys who kind of stink at this, doesn't it follow that they're also empowered by Satan? Unless, of course, God is weaker than Satan, which that, that cannot be. So he's turning this around. He's sort of roadrunnering this, this argument back on them, being like, all right, If you're going to have that argument, let's apply it consistently. So then he says in verse 19, therefore they shall be your judges. Your exorcists are going to be like, hey, you're you're criticizing us as well. He's saying your your accusation is completely inconsistent. This cannot be true. So so Jesus is effectively saying, okay, if I'm in cahoots with Satan, then so are your guys. So are your exorcists. So verse 20 now, he kind of brings us to a head. This is sort of a, a bump set, and now poof, here comes the spike over the net. But if I, with the finger of God, cast out demons, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says, this is the only alternative. If it's not satanic power, there's only one other source of supernatural power. That's it. It's either Satan or it's God. It's crazy talk to say that it's Satan who's doing this to himself, who's nuking himself, punching himself in the face. That doesn't make sense. So he says, oh, the only other alternative is that it is with the finger of God. Anthropomorphic language, God doesn't have fingers and hands. He doesn't not have a, God does not have a body. This is language to sort of help us think about how God works. We use our hands, we use our arms, we use our fingers to get stuff done. It's a, it's a, it's a metaphor for the power of God. So if it's God, by God's power, or as Matthew says, if by God's spirit, I'm casting out demons, then here's the implication. God's kingdom has broken in. By the way, this phrase, the finger of God, comes from the Old Testament. There's Old Testament references all over the New Testament. Back in the book of Exodus, Moses is going in to say, let my people go. Remember, he comes in and he's got these signs that he does. He throws the stick on the ground. It turns to a snake, picks it back up, turns back into a stick. He's able to do these things to validate his, his, his divine authorization. But here's the thing. Pharaoh has some demonically empowered 
magicians of his court who are able to replicate a number of these miracles. Until we get to Exodus chapter 8. And in verse 19, we have the, the, the plague of the lice. That's the third plague of the ten plagues. Verse 18, the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So they've been able to replicate some of the miracles by Satan's power. They're like, we, yeah, we've been able to sort of you know, keep up with Moses, but now they're not able to. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. By the way, what a horrible plague. Like, just lice everywhere. It's just miserable. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, this is the what? Finger of God. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. So this phrase, the finger of God, is Jesus again saying, hey, your exorcists, they're about as effective and about as honest and about as genuine as Pharaoh's court magicians. You guys think I'm on God's, uh, on Satan's side. It is y'all who is on Satan's side. That's a really direct, because they knew the Old Testament. They knew that phrase. Their, their minds would have gone back to Exodus 8, verse 19. Now, here's the point. Where's the kingly authority? If I cast out demons with the finger of God, which I do, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The authority, the rule of God, the king is here. I'm the one who the prophets has foretold. I am the son of David. I'm the one who will rule and reign. This is a declaration of his kingly authority. Now, just a word. Remember back in verse 2. Look at verse 2. When ye pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. We saw last week that this prayer, thy kingdom come, is a prayer for the future consummation of the kingdom. We're praying for Jesus to come back. We're praying for him to rule and reign. And yet in verse 20, he's saying, hey, the kingdom is here. Like, okay, so which is it? Is it future or is it present? And the answer is yes. Right in the person of Jesus, the kingdom has been inaugurated and he rules through the gospel. He rules in the realm of the redeemed. He rules in his church being high and lifted up far above every principality and power. Jesus is king even now. He rules right now from the throne of David from heaven. And the day is coming when he will split the eastern sky and come back and exert his rule in this world and finally vanquish all evil. So the phrase I like is the kingdom is already, it's now. And it's not yet. It's, there's still an aspect we say thy kingdom come. It's not fully here. We don't have the full realization. Jesus' point is, hey, the kingdom has been established. It has been inaugurated. You guys need to pick a side. I have kingly authority. Now, kings in the ancient world uh, wielded immense authority, the authority of life and death. The notion of a king who just sort of has like, well, sort of hypothetical authority. This is not like the Queen of England who walks around with her hat and her gloves sipping tea and like going to little, little parties and whatnot. Kings in the ancient world had real authority. If they said, you're out, you're gone, right? This is total, absolute control that Jesus is claiming. He's saying, I am the one who rules. The king walks in, says, I'm the king. This is a demand that you submit to him. What Jesus demands of this world is not just... Well, will you, will you invite Jesus into your heart? We have this picture of Jesus today where we're like, well, Jesus is just kind of out there and he's ah, in the cold and we need to like, invite him in. Oh, poor Jesus. No, Jesus is king. He's the Lord and he does, not, he does not say, would you maybe invite me? No, he is the one who demands that we submit to him. He's, he commands the world to repent and believe. And the question is, will you? The question is, have you? And do you acknowledge that authority in every area of your life? It's one thing to say, oh, yeah, Jesus is king. Okay, what does that mean in your life? How is your life tomorrow morning going to be different because Jesus is your king? How will you do your job differently than your unregenerate coworker? How will your view on current events be different than, than the view of those who don't know God? How do you lead and respond in your marriage in a way that is distinct from those who don't know God. What, what is fundamentally different about your life because of Jesus? Like if we took Jesus completely out of your life and boom, there's no more Jesus, how much of your life would be different? Like is he sort of a, a little add-on, a little cherry that goes on the, on the top of the, you know, the, the whipped cream on top of the pie? Or is he the pie? Right? Is, is it just sort of a nice decoration on the wall? Or is he the foundation of your life? It's a question we must wrestle with. Jesus is demanding of the audience here and of us today that we submit to his authority, to his rule. 
Why? He's got this miraculous divine authority, boom, just casting demons out. Like, oh, hail the power of Jesus' name. This is awesome power. We must submit to him because of his kingly, because of his royal power, his authority. But finally, we must submit to Jesus because of his conquering power. He continues responding to this argument that, hey, you're empowered by Satan. And he's going to say, look at my conquering power. Beginning in verse 21, he gives us another illustration. He gave us one illustration. Okay, a kingdom at civil war, boom, is going to sort of self-destruct. Verse 21 now, he gives another argument, another, another illustration, another picture. He's going to say, okay, a, a strong man, a, a mighty warrior who's armed, he's got all his armor, all of his stuff. You're not breaking into his house. Just not going to happen until you disarm him, right? A guy with a gun, you're not going to rob him until you get rid of the gun. So verse 21, when a strong man armed keepeth his palace, which I really like that translation. It fits the imagery of the kingdom and, and kings. This is a building that has a courtyard. This is, the, this is the palace, the place from which he rules. His goods are at peace. Everything's great. He can, he can hang on to his stuff. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armor wherein he trusted and divideth his spoils. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth. Jesus is saying, look at my conquering power. So in the illustration, there's a strong man and there's a stronger man. Doesn't doesn't take a, a PhD in theology to figure out what he's referring to, the strong man. Satan, the stronger man, Jesus, in this, in this illustration. Satan does have great power. He does have great might. Right? He's not just a little joke that a little punchline, a guy with, you know, like a red suit and a pitchfork tail running around. It says, so long as the strong man is armed and dangerous, nobody's robbing his house. Nobody's breaking into the house where the guy is literally standing out front with a spear and his sword and all of his armor being like, yeah, bring it. Come on. Like, I dare you to. So, so, so long as the strong man remains armed, he keeps, he guards his palace. All his goods are in peace. So nobody can defeat the strong man unless he is defeated first by another who is stronger than him. Okay, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. We all know that saying. Jesus is saying the only way for Satan to be defeated is for someone with even greater power. God. You're God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity. So Jesus says, I'm the, the stronger one. But when a stronger than he shall come, then he shall overcome him, or shall come upon him, shall attack him and overcome him and take from him all the armor, and he divides the spoil. So Satan's saying, hey, I have come and I have defeated Satan. I have walked, boom, right into his living room and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm taking stuff. I have conquered him. I have defeated him. Now, what is the stuff? What are the goods that are being spoiled? This here, of course, is a metaphor for the people who are being delivered. Satan has these souls that he has captured, these people who are being demonized, the people who are enslaved in sin. And Jesus is like, I'm coming in and I'm rescuing people. The fact that I just cast out a demon proves the strong man has been defeated. I wouldn't be able to do that if the strong man were still defending his stuff. The fact he's leading captives out of jail shows that he has broken open the doors and disarmed the guard. The fact that he, that, that he is delivering people and healing people proves that he is stronger than Satan, that he has conquered. Now, Paul will draw on this imagery in, in Ephesians. But before we jump over to that, I want to show you where this comes from, because this, again, is a reference to the Old Testament. Go back with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49. The New Testament is not just sort of like a standalone, has no connection to the Old Testament. We cannot unhitch it from the, the Old Testament, from the New Testament. But it is tightly woven. It's built on the foundation of the Old Testament, and there are threads that connect the Old and New Testaments together. And even this illustration of the strong man being defeated and people being captives being led out of, his, out of his prison is rooted in Isaiah 49. Now, Isaiah 49 is one of the servant songs. It talks about a guy who's coming, the, the servant of Yahweh, right, who's going who's gonna to come. We, we can read about that in the, in the first few verses. We find about the Messiah's mission in the opening verses. Verse 6, I'll give you as a light for the Gentiles that thou mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. That's explicitly fulfilled in Jesus then beginning in verse 8, we, we see that Zion one day will be restored. There's this comfort that, that is unleashed in verse 13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth. Break into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people, will have mercy on his afflicted. 
Verse 16, I've graven thee on the palms of my hands. Thy walls are continually before me. God's promised protection of his people. And God's describing this day when, when everything is going to be restored and when this, this kingdom is brought in. He says, you know, the kings will be in this place where they are serving you, verses 22, 23. Uh, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for thou shalt not be ashamed that wait for me. Verse 24, shall the prey be taken from the mighty or the lawful captive delivered? Okay, this is the illustration Jesus is, use, is using. Okay, do people just go and take prisoners away from people who are really, really strong? The answer, of course, is no. But thus saith the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away, and the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him that contendeth with thee, and I will save thy children, and I will feed them that oppress thee with their own flesh. They shall be drunken with their own blood as with sweet wine, and all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am thy Savior and thy Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. So, oh yeah, yeah, you don't just take stuff away from the mighty, but I'm the mighty one of Jacob. Oh, what encouragement and comfort there is on this. To know that there is no enemy who is stronger than Christ. Maybe you are here today and you're feeling the despair, darkness of just some sin. You're like, I just can't, can't beat this. We call it, call it addiction. And addiction sort of feeds on the self in this, this spiral of, of despair of like, okay, I'm going to do better. And then you fail and you get sucked back in. And then the hope that you had is dashed and you end up in a worse, a darker and darker place. And shame and guilt just feed into this vortex. Like there's no hope. Maybe you're here today and just the darkness has descended to where you're like, I don't even know if life's worth it. And maybe everything looks cheery and happy on the outside. Nobody knows what you're, what you're walking through. You think there's no hope. Jesus is the stronger one. He's stronger than darkness. He is stronger than sin. He is stronger than Satan. And there is no foe that is stronger than him. There is no wall that is so high that that his grace cannot overcome it. His power is able to to break the chains. He sets the captives free. I love the verse of, uh, the last verse of, and can it be, long my prison spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Jesus can do that in your life. Our our problem is we we don't believe it. We want to keep looking to ourselves and keep trusting in ourselves. And we're going to fail every time. Put your eyes on Christ. Put your eyes on the one who is stronger Put your eyes on the cross where your sin was judged and paid for. Put your eyes on the empty tomb where it was killed, where death itself died. He is the stronger one. Now, this theme gets picked up later on in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 4. So go over there to see the other side of this. We trace this thread of victory. We have it there in Isaiah. Jesus references it there in Luke. And then Paul picks this up. In Ephesians chapter 4, and here he's going to quote from Psalm 68, but again, the idea of the, the triumph of Jesus, and what does this mean for our lives? So Jesus has defeated the stronger one. Great. He's defeated Satan. Awesome. So what? Verse 7 of Ephesians 4, but unto every one of us is given grace, given a gift according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So talking about the church, we've all been given these spiritual gifts, this, this unique Ability to have a spiritually significant impact in someone else's life. Wherefore, he saith, this is quoting from Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? So the glorification of Christ has a corollary in the humiliation of Christ. He that descended is the same also that ascended. So the same Jesus who died on the cross is the same one who rose from the dead. The same Jesus who was incarnate is the same one who ascended to heaven. Uh, So he ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, under the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Okay, there's tons here that we could unpack. We don't have time to get into all of it, but here's the point. 
Jesus' victory over Satan and sin and death means that we have been granted victory as well. It also means that he has taken the spoils of war and shared them with his followers. In the ancient world, when a general goes and wins a battle, you go and plunder the enemy. That's what Jesus is referring to, by the way, where he says all of his spoils are distributed. You take the plunder of the enemy, you take all their stuff, all their gold, all their silver, their horses, and you share the spoils of war with your followers. This verse is saying Jesus has shared the spoils of his victory with his followers. And here's the crazy thing. Here's the, here's the spoils of war. Spiritual gifts. The ability to make a difference in someone else's life. The gift he gives to the church. Apostles, prophets. Okay, those gifts have been fulfilled. Evangelists. Okay, church planters, missionaries. The spoils of war. They've been taken out of the, out of the prison of Satan and gifted to the church. And then the pastor teacher. A gift to the church. Why? So that we can grow up to be like Jesus. This is crazy, like just the implications of the victory of Jesus. Every good thing that you and I have, right? Victory over sin, forgiveness, the ability to have relationships with each other in this church, the ability to minister to one another. Get this, all of this is one at the hand of Jesus. We have no gift from God except for that that has been bought by the blood of Jesus. Every gift of grace was purchased at the cross. Every gift of grace was purchased at the cross. That's incredible. Even the sun rising over this wicked city was purchased at the cross. Even God giving life to those who reject him, purchased at the cross. Our forgiveness, our reconciliation to God, purchased at the cross. Our eternal life, purchased at the cross. This victory over Satan, the hour of darkness, the greatest, the culmination of this victory where the strong man was finally defeated, of course, was the cross. And Satan thought he had won, but God had the final word. He that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh. All right, let's come back around now to, to Luke 12, this, this victory that Jesus wins over the strong man. His, his conquering power Verse 23, he that's not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth. Now, verses 24 through 26, we, we, we'll deal with these some next week as well. But let me make just a simple point here. Look at these verses. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest. And finding none, he saith, I'll return to the house whence I came out. And when he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then he goeth, takes to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, then they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of the man is worse than the first. I think what Jesus is describing is, okay, when, when these Jewish exorcists attempt their little tricks, and Satan's kind of like, yeah, I'll go along with them to deceive people, that the spirit leaves temporarily, but there's not this permanent, lasting transformation. The demons leave, the, the evil is gone, but it is not replaced with righteousness. King Jesus is not ruling in that life. There's simply moral reformation. There's not spiritual transformation. Inevitably, hey, nature abhors a vacuum. Evil will fill that once again, and the end result will be worse than the start. That's the sense of what is going on there. What Jesus is, is claiming in verses 24 to 20, 26. So, yeah, I've got, I've got conquering power not only to conquer Satan but to conquer sin. Not only to deliver, to defeat Satan, but to deliver sinners. You see, you and I are totally unable to bring transformation to our hearts or to anyone else's heart. By the way, don't try. It, 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 it brings so much pressure into a marriage, to a relationship, where you're like, well, it's my job to try to change my spouse's heart and, and make them, make them you know, love Jesus. It, you don't have the ability to manipulate and to change someone's heart. Only, only God does. We have this, this complete inability to change, to save ourselves. But Jesus' power does not just leave the house empty. He doesn't just say, okay, clean up your life in these five ways and you're, you're good to go. He comes in and he completely renovate, renovates the house. He moves in. He transforms. And there's a new affection that he gives to us when we become his children. I love the phrase, the expulsive power of a new affection. He comes into our lives, and our love for Jesus is so strong that there's no, there's no more room to love what we once loved. What verses 24, 25, and 26 is saying is it's not good enough to just sort of deal with the worst effects of evil in your life and then call it good. No, the, the strong man, the king, he must dwell. He must rule. 
Think of the extent of his rule. He is to rule, not you, in your marriage. There's a lot of marriages that are in trouble because we say, my kingdom come rather than thy kingdom come. He, not you, is to rule in your marriage. He, not you, is to rule in your worldview. He, not you, is to rule your politics. He, not you, is to rule your work ethic. He, not you, is to rule your entertainment. He, not you, is to rule your thoughts. He, not you, is to rule your schedule. He is to be Lord over all. He is to have preeminence in all things. This means that to be a Christ follower, it's not about making a momentary choice. It's not about putting a bumper sticker on your car. It's not about checking the box on the pole to say, I'm an evangelical Christian. It's not about showing up to church for an hour once a week. It's about having a real relationship to the king. It's about turning from your sins and trusting his delivering work alone to save. We'll spend the rest of our lives as Christians coming to grips with what that means. He comes to dwell in our lives, and he's going to begin to renovate. He's going to move walls. He's going to redecorate, so to speak, in, our house, in the house of our hearts. He's going to knock out walls. He's going to open up the closets. He, he's going to eventually take control over all things. But we are faced with a, with a very real question here today. How will you respond to the authority of Jesus? There's only one appropriate response. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can respond with fascination. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And then I'm going to leave out of here changed. You can respond with accusation like they did. Well, Jesus really isn't that good. He's evil. How can good things? He, he did bad things in my life, so I'm going to reject him. You can respond with skepticism. I don't know. I need more, more proof. Or you can respond with repentance, with faith, with submission. In the final estimation, there are only two responses to bow the knee or to spit in his face. To receive him or to reject him. Book of Revelation, I want to land the plane here. Chapter 14 makes the same point. Verse 6, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. So this is the gospel for everybody, not just for Americans, but for the nations saying, fear God and give glory to him. That's the gospel. Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Now here's what it looks like for those who do bow the knee. Chapter 15, verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the, the, the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, Just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy, for all nations shall come and worship before thee. For thy judgments are made.